How do you feel when the phone rings? Is it, oh, I wonder who that could be? That's exciting. Is it, oh no, who's that now then? You, you go and answer it. Is it, a oh, worry, oh dear, I wonder who that could be. It was um, this week a year ago now when I took a phone call from my mum to say that uh, my dad had been diagnosed with cancer and the, the outlook wasn't very good. And I'm sure many of you will recall similar moments in your lives when you've taken such phone calls. And if you haven't yet, there will be one day when you do take such phone calls. And it may well bring your world crashing down around you. Everything that you had looked forward to, all plans that you had made, things you maybe took for granted, everything's just suddenly been destroyed. And the question is, how do you cope when you get that news, when that call comes? How do you cope As we come to the end of our sermon series in Lamentations, we come to a chapter which is different from the other chapters in many ways. For a start, it's it's not an acrostic in the Hebrew like the other ones. In many ways, it stands on its own as a prayer. And the person praying is surrounded by devastation. Everything is in ruins. And the worst thing about this passage when we read it is not that the people have nothing, but that the people have nothing when they once had so much. It's a feeling I felt sometimes when I used to go out on the, uh, the tea run for the homeless on a Friday night, Saturday morning in London. When you realise the person you met with all his worldly belongings in one plastic bag actually hadn't always been like that. Actually, at one stage, they may have actually lived a very normal life. They once had quite a lot. But when you met them, they had virtually nothing. We read earlier from Deuteronomy about what was awaiting the people of Israel as they entered the promised land. How all the good things that were going to be given to them were a a, a gift, a present from God. They didn't have to to work hard to, to earn them. God gave it to them out of his generosity, out of his love for them, to to mark them out as his chosen people. He gave them land, he gave them property. But here, when we read these words, when we read in verse 2, it says, our inheritance has been turned over to aliens, our homes to foreigners. They were a community of of close-knit families that now... Verse 3, we've become orphans and fatherless, our mothers like widows. They had running streams of water. But now in verse 4, we must buy the water we drink. Our wood can be had only at a price. They had subdued all their enemies and enjoyed peace and rest in the land. But now, in verse 5, those who pursue us are at our heels. We are weary and find no rest. Or verse 8, slaves rule over us and there is none to free us from their hands. They had all the food they needed and now in desperation, verse, submit, verse 6, we submitted to Egypt and Israel to get enough bread. Or verse 9, we get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the desert. We are feverish from hunger. It's devastation, it's the loss of everything. And, but how does this person respond in the face of them, in the face of a ruined life, in the face of, of a ruined nation? 
How do we respond when faced with such calamity? And if we haven't had to yet, how do we prepare ourselves to face these times when they come? Because we will all at some times face these times of crisis. And the answer for the person in this passage is that he prays. This passage is a prayer. It starts with a, a plea to God. It says, remember, O Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. And it includes an expression of what he's feeling as he goes through all this. Uh, on, towards the end of the, the chapter, verse 15, he says, Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. And if we are here this morning as Christians, we too may find ourselves in periods of spiritual darkness when we've lost our joy. Maybe different reasons for that sense of, of despair. It may have been caused by physical illness, either mental or bodily. It may have been caused by bereavement, the loss of someone very close to you. Maybe redundancy, maybe the loss of direction and meaning in life. And this passage doesn't provide a neat answer to the problem of pain and suffering. But what it does do is show someone who, despite being surrounded by ruins, is still able to pray, is still able to, to cling on to his faith. And the question is, how can we be sure that we will be able to do that when disaster strikes us, that we will be able to pray when maybe at that time we won't really want to or won't really feel like praying. There's no point waiting until something happens to see how we will react because then it will be too late. We need to prepare ourselves for such events. And this prayer this morning helps us do that. And I think it does it in two ways. And the first way is to acknowledge that we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. And that means two things. It means, first of all, that we may be innocent victims of something that happens in this world to us. We may be innocent victims. But also, on the other hand, we are guilty culprits for what happens in this world. And we have to acknowledge both of those things. If we only acknowledge one, then we will have real problems in life. If we only think we are victims, then we will be blind to the effects of our actions on, on other people. There's a documentary on TV the, the other night which described the stories of innocent people being victims of attacks. But it didn't just focus on the, the victims themselves, it also looked at the reactions of those around them. How did they respond when they saw something like this going on? There was one 12-year-old girl who was on a bus with a friend and she was attacked by a girl gang. She was pushed to the floor, she was kicked, uh, and ended up psychologically scarred. You know, every night for months she had nightmares, she couldn't go out of the house. And what was worse for her was not the attack itself, but the unwillingness of the other passengers on that bus to, to get involved. We just sat there and did nothing. And for her, they, they shared in the responsibility of, of her pain. It was like the crowd who did nothing when Jesus was crucified, who shared in the guilt of those who sentenced him to death, who shared in the guilt of those who actually crucified him. 
And the writer here in Lamentations acknowledges this, this double role, that we can be innocent victims, but also responsible for what happens to us and others. He describes the, the awful suffering here that people have gone through. He describes women being raped, princes being hung up by their hands. In earlier chapters, we read of babies being killed. And on one hand, he, he's blaming the previous generations for causing this. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their punishment. He's saying, they are the ones who ignored all those warnings that Jeremiah went on about of what would happen if they rejected God. They ignored the fact that the inheritance, it says in verse 2, had been given to them. In other words, they enjoyed being given stuff, but they ignored, they rejected the one who had given it to them. They didn't acknowledge where that all came from. They didn't acknowledge that they'd actually done nothing to deserve it. It was all a gift of God's grace to them. But the writer here also realises that his own generation is guilty as well. Verse 16, he comes to the end of this passage and he says, Woe to us, for we have sinned. He's saying we can't just blame what has happened to us on others. We too, he's saying, we enjoy the gifts, but we rejected the one who gave them to us. Those people continue to do today, 2,000 years later, or even more, 3,000 years later. People will enjoy the times of economic prosperity. They will enjoy it when they're, they're, the value of their house is rising. They will enjoy it when their jobs are secure, when they can go out and take holidays and enjoy meals. But when recession comes, then suddenly it's not fair that it's all been taken away. Somebody must be responsible for that. It's not my fault. Let's blame the bankers. They're easy ones to to lay the blame on. Let's find a scapegoat. But to acknowledge that we live in a fallen world is to accept that we might suffer innocently, but that we also are responsible for our actions. And that's what it says back in chapter 3 of 20, verse 29 of chapter 3, we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Verse 39, rather, it says, Why should any living man complain when punished for his sins? Unless we have this dual perspective on sin, we will go through life complaining that that we are victims. It was our parents' fault. It was the fact that I, I went to a rubbish school. It was my order in the family in which I came. I was a middle child. We live in a fallen world and we will suffer because sin hurts. And it's in a fallen world that you need someone who is perfectly just, someone whom you can turn to. Human justice systems will never be be perfect. God is perfectly just, and the reason the man here prays to God is because he knows he's just, he knows he's righteous, he knows that he will punish sin. Whether in the case of, of the people of Israel, it is in their earthly life, or in the case of those living after Jesus Christ in the life to come on Judgment Day. But God will not allow his character, he will not allow his nature to be dishonoured forever. And that's why the man of prayer calls here in verse 1 on God to remember us, look and see our disgrace. He's saying if we have been disgraced as your people, then you too are being disgraced, your name is being dishonoured. We can prepare ourselves 
for when disaster strikes by acknowledging that we live in a fallen world. But secondly, by clinging on to our faith in God's sovereignty. The amazing thing about this prayer is that having gone through all this, this disaster that his people have experienced, having expressed his, his loss of joy, his faint-heartedness, just as at the end of that you're expecting him to say, as he does, why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long, God? He does cry out like that. But the amazing thing is that in verse 19, he says, You, O Lord, reign forever. He says, Your throne endures from generation to generation. It's like, where did that come from? It takes a, a huge amount of faith in the midst of the ruins of your own city, amidst the bodies of your own people, amidst the disgrace of being humiliated by a foreign army. To trust that God still reigns. To say, you, O Lord, reign forever. Because the question we will all have had at some stage, if he were so powerful, then why didn't he do something to stop it? And without trying to to come up with a nice, neatly packaged answer to the problem of suffering, what we can observe here is that to say God reigns is to say that he can achieve his purposes through the use of both good and evil. It's what we saw again back in chapter 3 a couple of weeks ago in verse 38 when he says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? This period before the exile of Israel to Babylon was that it was a low point in the history of the Jewish race. And this book of Lamentations is, is a permanent record of that. It's a permanent warning about the dangers of idolatry. And the people of Israel never forgot the lesson that the exile taught them about the dangers of idolatry. And hundreds of years later, when they, they returned from exile to their own land, to Jerusalem, they were, they were not without their problems, but there was no longer this issue of idolatry in that sense. God is in control of history, both the good and the evil, and that means he is in control of our lives. Now, it doesn't mean that we're not responsible for our actions, as we've said already this morning. Every day we take decisions which affect what happens to us and those around us. I mentioned the example of that 12-year-old girl on the bus, but there was also another guy in that documentary who was knifed, And in that case, somebody did stand up to the attacker and saved his life. And as the man who survived later confessed, that action didn't just bring great joy to his own life, it brought joy to all the people he knew. That that action had ripple effects in the same way that our actions, our individual actions, all have ripple effects on many people. But the amazing thing here is, to get our heads around, is how has God decided to make a world in which his sovereignty and our personal responsibility, our freedom to make those decisions, go hand in hand. And we will never really fully understand that. I think there are times, though, when he does save us from the the consequences of our actions. I don't know about you, but I think as I look back on my life and think of things I've done wrong, particularly before I came to Christ... It could have been a lot worse, and it might 
have been had God not protected me from, from myself, had he not been a restraining influence. And I'm sure a lot of you could say the same. The greatest example in the Bible of God using evil to achieve his purposes is, of course, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And we'll be remembering that particularly next Friday morning. But we remember that knowing that on the Sunday we'll be coming back to celebrate his resurrection, celebrate his victory over sin and death. We just turn quickly to John chapter 19. We have this interaction between Pilate and Jesus. Page 1087, if you've got a church Bible, John 19. And we see here in verse 10 that Pilate really thinks he is in control of what is going on here. And he says to Jesus, don't you realise I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And what does Jesus say? He says in verse 11, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Pilate thinks he's in control, but it is God using that evil for which he is responsible to achieve his better purposes. And you need to be pretty powerful to get your enemies to do your bidding for you, don't you? You need to be pretty powerful when, when all of the people you made, including all of us here this morning, turn against you. But you may be sitting here thinking, well, yeah, I know that in my head that God is in control. I know he's sovereign. I know I'm responsible. But it doesn't feel like God is in charge here. If it was so easy to have faith during these difficult times, then this prayer wouldn't be here. This prayer would not end with the words in verse 21, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may return and renew our days as of old, unless... You have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. That's not a very happy ending, is it really? Not a very optimistic ending. Could have changed that a little bit. Could have tweaked it. But it's a realistic ending, isn't it? It's because the person praying this prayer is human. He's experienced terrible suffering that none of us is likely to experience in our lifetimes. And yet he's still clinging on to this belief that you, O Lord, reign Forever, your throne endures from generation to generation. And sometimes that will be the same for us. There may be dark times ahead when, when our hearts grow faint, when our eyes grow dim, when the crown, it says here, falls from our head. While we were living in Brazil, and sorry, I haven't had a Brazilian illustration for a while, so good job. Helen's not here to take note of it. She takes note of these things. Um, we took part in the Rio Carnival, and um, the Rio Carnival was an amazing thing. There were six or so what they call samba schools, each between 2,000 and 4,000 people taking part in each one of those. And uh, in each one of those schools, there is a, a section of about 200 people dressed exactly the same. Uh, and each section tells the part of a story as the procession goes along. And it's a very serious competition. And each school gets marked for, for the costumes, for the way they, they tell the story. And uh, you samba down this, this avenue for about a, a kilometre. Uh, on each side there are thousands of spectators cheering you on. And uh, we were dressed as Greek warriors. 
And we had to wear these, these huge helmets full of, of feathers. And uh, just as our section prepared to, to enter the, the, the avenue, um, the strap on my helmet broke. And uh, I spent the next um, half an hour or so trying to samba down. I won't do it now, but um, need a bit of music for that. Samba down this avenue trying to keep this, this thing on my hair because if it had fallen off, you know, you get marks deducted. If we are in Christ, we are told in the Bible that we reign with him. That we are crowned by him. But there will be times when it feels like the crown is slipping off and we're trying desperately to keep that on. But what do we do in those times? Do we try desperately hard to to keep it on ourselves? Or actually, do we focus on the one who put it there in the first place? Do we, in the words of Isaiah 51, look to the rock? One of the well-known parables of Jesus um, is the, the parable of the man who built his house on the rock. There was the foolish man who built it on, a, on, on sand and the rain came down and the floods came up. Um, the rain came down and the floods came up. And the house on the sand fell flat, didn't it? But then there was the the man who built his house on the rock, and the rain comes down and the floods came up. But that house on the rock stood firm, and the sand, as we know, represents putting your trust in yourself, and the rock represents putting your trust in Jesus. But sometimes I think maybe we don't focus on that, although the house is built on the rock, and obviously it's more secure because it is built on a strong foundation of Jesus Christ, it is still just a house. It is still our faith. And they may come along a hurricane one day and, and actually cause it a bit of damage. Just smash the windows and, and, and rip the door off its hinges. No hurricane is going to move the rock because the rock is, is there for good. That is Jesus Christ. He's there yesterday, today and forever. But the house, our faith, is, is, is not perfect. There will be times when it's vulnerable. And so those times that we need to focus on what it is built we need to focus on the truth of Jesus Christ rather than how we are feeling, how we, how we think we are doing on that subjective side of things. And that was the, what it's the man of prayer is doing here. Even though he says, look, joy has gone from my heart, I feel absolutely miserable. I don't feel like dancing anymore, I'm just mourning. And yet he also focuses on the rock. He says, you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. And living before Jesus Christ, he didn't even fully understand what those words would have meant. Living in the days after Jesus Christ, we can have even greater confidence because the reason we know Jesus Christ reigns forever is because as we shall be celebrating next week, he's risen from the dead. He's conquered sin, he's conquered death. He sits on the throne waiting to take his people to be with him forever. And to reign with him is to cling on to faith. We go through this life with the crown on our heads representing the fact that Jesus reigns, that we reign with him. But sometimes I think we feel we have to keep it there by our own efforts. And we beat ourselves up because you know, we become depressed when we fail when we give in to sin, when we 
Don't live up to expectations when we are worried about what people think about us. And we lose our joy. We lose our joy in the Christian faith. It all becomes a bit of drudgery. But if we've truly put our trust in Jesus through the good times and the bad times, and that crown is fixed, our eternity is secure. He promises to keep us secure. It's by God's grace that we have a faith in the first place. And so if we feel we are losing that faith, then it's to the one who gave us that faith in the first place that we need to go. It's to him we need to go and and say, in verse 21, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. It's a call for mercy. Tragedy, speaking to those uh, who've had some sort of Catholic upbringing, is that they've often felt they never really know whether they're, they're saved, whether they've really done enough to be made right with God. It's captured in a song by an Irish band I used to enjoy listening to in the 80s, a bit of a mixture of Irish folk and punk called The Pogues. Uh, one of their songs was called If I Should Fall From Grace, and The lyrics went like this, If I should fall from grace with God, where no doctor can relieve me, if I'm buried neath the sod, but the angels won't receive me, let me go, boys, let me go, boys, let me go down in the mud where the rivers all run dry. It's a very sad song, because if God has saved you by his grace, he will not allow you to fall from grace. You will reign with him forever. Well, as we come to the, not just the end of the sermon, to the end of this series on Lamentations, I wonder what you think is the, the abiding lesson for us to take away. I think there's many lessons we can take away. I hope it hasn't been too much of a struggle going through this book. It's clearly a book that provides a, a strong warning, a warning to a world that's turned its back on God, a world that's taken the gifts from God, and yet reject the one who gave them. It's a book that provides a strong reminder that God will exercise his judgment, that we can take comfort in the fact that he is a God of justice, because that shows he can be trusted and he cares for us. But I think above all, it's a message of hope in the midst of despair that comes through so powerfully. If I were to choose three verses to, to try and sum up the message of the book. I think um, there will be these three which are going to appear on the screen. first one is that one from chapter 3, verse 22. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. And there's 4.22, at the end of um, the last chapter, O daughter of Zion, your punishment will end. It will not prolong your exile. And this morning, when things are looking dark, when we feel the crown is slipping, then the call in verse 21, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may return, renew our days as of old. We all have the chance to call on God for his mercy. And if you haven't done that yet, will you do that today? 
Call on God for his mercy. If you've done it once but you feel quite far from God now, you feel that um, there's no joy there, that the crown is slipping, then focus on the one who gave you that crown of life, the one who, who reigns forever, the one who will restore you to himself, Jesus Christ, and call on his mercy.